You know, there are some ways in which we're never really prepared to hear a message on hell. I wasn't watching the calendar a couple of decades ago, and I preached a message on hell on Mother's Day. In other ways, after you've heard the message, you will think to yourself, that's exactly what I needed. Some of you have been through a week knowing how God works, where you're ready to hear a message on hell because you want to make sure you weren't just living there and you're not there now. But let me tell you where this comes in the overall picture of what God is developing in this congregation. Beginning with Easter, we said, Easter wasn't just about Easter morning, where God says to us, I have broken the bonds of death. You will live after you die. Easter was also about Easter evening. When Christ came back and deposited into his disciples, breathed into them the Holy Spirit, and inaugurated a new community that would establish colonies of heaven on earth. And he taught us to pray before he even did that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now in order to truly understand why God has given you what he has, why you are irreplaceable in that mission, why you've been through what you have, what you have yet to do. In some ways, we can only picture it or best picture it by picturing its opposite. By contrasting, we will clarify. And so, hell is not just a subject. Hell is a negative. Hell is an opposite. It has an essence, but no substance. It has a corruption, but no positive being. First of all, let's, let's start at the, at the, you know, the broad base here. Does, do people in, in these days still believe in hell? Um, society, does society still believe in hell? Uh, and the figures would say, yeah. The latest Pew poll says, 55% um, of the people in this country believe in hell after you die. Um, and as, as, as differentiated from 72% believe in heaven. <laughs> we have a way of avoiding that which we don't want to think about. Um, CBS did a poll, uh, a little bit more of a, uh, of a percentage, 66% of Americans believe both in a heaven and a hell. 11% uh, only believe uh, in a heaven. For those who believe in both a heaven and a hell, 82% um, of those expected they would go to heaven. 2% expected they would go to hell. I'm not sure how you live like that. But, um, but the point is this. There's a general belief in hell, but when we come to whether or not we believe, I want you to know something. You don't have to believe in hell in order to go to heaven. But if you don't believe in hell, it means that you know more than Jesus. Because Jesus taught more about hell than he taught about heaven. 
And so you've got to come to the place where you either believe Jesus about this or not. This is what he said in Matthew, or is recorded in Matthew chapter 25. Starting with verse 41, that he, the judge of the, of, the, of the earth, shall say to those on his left, depart from me. I want you to remember those words. Accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, let me tell you what we're not going to do today. We're not going to get into the details of whether the lake of fire is literal or figurative, if it's simply symbolic of the, uh, uh, the garbage dump of Gehenna uh, that was outside the walls of Jerusalem and so on and so forth. I, I don't want to get into the details of speculating on the afterlife. But I would like to present to you the very real nature of hell that is among you and maybe in you right now. I think that's what God would have us address. As for the afterlife, there are people who believe in annihilation instead of an eternal punishment. Annihilation simply means when you die, you die, unless you go to heaven and then you can have eternal life. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in um, annihilation. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists believe in annihilation. There are even some credible theologians. Um, um, John Stott, I read, believes in annihilation. So, so that's okay. There are some people who believe that um, hell um, couldn't be eternal because God couldn't be that mad. And so there's a temporary hell. It's kind of a reform school uh, where you go until you clean up your act and then you, you get into heaven. Um, and there are some people um, who can't stand the idea of hell. They're called universalists. And they say, look, God's merciful, loves everybody, y'all come. So no matter what kind of life you lived, everybody ends up there. Um, there are some people who dwell on the eternal punishment aspect. The agony and the... Uh, the uh, the torture, and so on and so forth. They feel like it benefits people to scare them into, in, you know, kind of scared straight kind of stuff. Um, let me tell you where I'm coming from so you don't have to wonder. I believe what Jesus said. I believe that there is a, an eternal state. But here's what I believe. I believe that the general biblical witness, the whole biblical witness, Let's us choose whether or not we will be a part of heaven or apart from heaven, a part of God or apart from God. I believe God respects our choice. C.S. Lewis once said, in the end, there are only two prayers. One, we pray to God, thy will be done. The other, God pronounces upon us, thy will be done. In other words, if that's what you've decided, I'm not going to countermand that. And so I, I believe there is a self-chosenness into hell. Now you say, who would choose hell? Well, watch how I describe it. And you may picture yourself or someone you know. Because hell is separation. Separation. 
It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, all of us, haven't we, have kind of stepped away, separated ourselves from God at one time or another in our lives. So I want to talk about a personal path that we can take or not take according to our intention to hell. Because the whosoever, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life is very important. And so I, I, want, I, want, to, I want us to understand that, that not only do we have a tendency to drift away from God and from each other, because this is also about our human relationships. Hell is being self-isolated from each other as well as from God. And so therefore I want us to know, not only do we have that tendency, but we've got a little help. We've got an adversary who wants us to go there. Now he's basically lazy, he won't put in any more effort than he needs to. But let me describe how this system works and let me tell you the process, all right? First of all, this adversary has been with us from the very beginning, from the garden times. It says in Genesis chapter three, verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Now, stop right there. The, the word crafty here means subtle. Nobody intends to ruin their life, do they? But have you ever come to a place in your life where you just stop and you say, how in the world did I end up here? Have you ever done something in your life where you said, how in the world did I do that? That isn't even who I am. How in the world did I get to the point where I would do something like that? And the answer is incrementally and unnoticed by you because the devil is subtle. He works in ways you don't notice because if you do notice and you've got any sense, you'll repent. And so, and so it says, serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now I'm going to show you a process that I call four D's. They all start with D. The first one is doubt. Do you understand what this question does? It plants the seed of doubt in the woman's mind. In fact, God had said just the opposite. You can eat of every tree of the garden. You know, I want to tell you, I've given you all supply. What is the question just been planted in, your, in her mind? What is the limitation God has put on you? Is that really supplying you? Does he really trust you? Does he? And so there's this doubt. Ever been in a relationship where something went wrong and you begin to doubt the trustworthiness of the other person? This is the first step toward separation. And the devil will work with that. You can't trust that person. That person doesn't have your best interest at mind. First step, doubt. And then it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, whoop, 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 where is she? She's standing in front of the very tree, the only tree that is forbidden by the command of God. 
So what did she do? What's the second D? Distance. She put distance between herself and what God had said. And she's standing right in front of that which she shouldn't have. Anytime you spend time in proximity to that which you shouldn't have or do, you will have it or do it. All right? Get out of there. I almost said get the hell out of there, but this is get to heaven. Get out of there. Because that's the point, isn't it? And so how, how does this isolation happen? We start with a doubt. We proceed with a distance. I'm not so sure I want to be so close to them. They, I, I don't know about them. I, 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 I need to draw a little boundary here. What's the third D? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, uh, by the way, if you're standing in front of temptation, you will always create reasons why you ought to participate in that temptation. You will always create good reasons. You're smart people. You will always create good reason why it would be good to do this thing or at least not all that bad. She took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, real spiritual leader, with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Third D, division. All of a sudden, there's a point at which you go, I got a firm boundary here. I'm not going to be transparent to you. I'm going to be, there's going, I'm going to be hidden from you, or at least part of me is going to be hidden from you. And, 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 there's, a, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a hiding spot where I can have my own life separate from you. There's a division. So we went from doubt to distance to division. And you know the rest of the story. They are excluded from the Garden of Eden. There comes a point in your division that it becomes your destiny. You can't turn back because you won't turn back. And that becomes our isolation. Now let me tell you the strategy of our enemy. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, be sober of spirit. Now, can I just throw this in too? We have all kinds of jokes about the devil. You know who laughs hardest at those? The devil. Because he wants us to dismiss him as someone who is inconsequential. That's part of the subtlety. As long as you're joking about this, as long as you're laughing about this, you are not being sober and you will not be alert. The Bible says you don't have to be burdened because Christ has already delivered you, but you do have to be sober. 
You got to think about these things. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, again, we get a really good picture of what his strategy is. Have you ever watched one of those nature programs? This is, this is no mystery. You know, lions are basically lazy. You know, when they go hunting, they don't want to put forth any more effort than they have to. You never see a lion charge a herd of wildebeest. Just jump into the middle of the and pick one out. They're always looking for the most available prey. And that comes in basically three categories. The first one is this. The immature, the young, who are just not paying attention. You know, there are a whole lot of Christians who don't have a mature faith. They don't understand the danger they're in. And so they believe in Christ, but they're, they're, they're fooling with the devil. And they're just kind of nibbling their way lost, so to speak. And that's what you see in these herds. You see this young thing that just kind of sees a tuft and then another tuft and then another tuft. That's the condition of all of us, the temptation of all of us. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Did we mean to get out of our safety zone? No. Did we mean to get out of the community that would protect us? No. But we just kind of saw the next tuft. I'm got, I'll nibble here. I'll nibble here. The second category that a lion will go after is the injured. Those who are hurting. Why? Because they're not paying attention to anything, uh, any, uh, either, full attention. Because they're so focused on their own pain. And there comes a point when you're so focused on your own pain, indeed, you spend all your time analyzing it and having other people help you analyze it, that you're totally in a world of your own. And you're not serving others. And you're not asking God for what you can do. You're too busy understand what you can't do. So he goes after the injured. There are great numbers of people in pain. And when you're in pain, you're a sitting duck for the devil to put thoughts in your mind about how nobody cares, not even God. Why would he let this happen to you? You might as well just be on your own. You might as well think realistically, all of this kind of stuff. And nobody around you understands and so therefore, you ought to just keep to yourself. Because you know what? You're a burden. You're a burden on people. And, 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 and if they haven't even asked you about it, it means they really don't care. They're not worth it. Third category is this. People who have created and are creating for themselves a world apart from the herd 
because they have found some self-gratification or in many of our cases self-justification they have found something that they don't need the herd for as a matter of fact they really don't want the herd to see because this is their world in a few days we are going to have a national conference here it's a first of its kind on juvenile sex trafficking the trafficking of young girls and young boys for sale 400 delegates will come from all over the country and we will address not only the victims but the perpetrators and I'm not just talking about the recruiters I'm talking about the demand side who would ever get to a place in their life where they would buy a child for sexual purposes well where does that come from it has a beginning it has a beginning that's very home at now in this culture we live in the most over sexualized culture in the history of this country and it's due to the pervasive and privatized availability of pornography now can I talk to you just straight for a minute just let's just talk and I'll try to talk in terms where the children among us won't won't be offended but but I, I, I need to say this to you this goes way beyond the morality of looking at dirty pictures this has an impact that nobody anticipates when they begin that natural curiosity as a matter of fact if you saw last week's time magazine you will see the progression of the habit that releases chemicals into your brain changes the chemistry of your brain and ultimately and this is the key ultimately disables your ability to have a real relationship with another person because now you have created not only an appetite but a process that becomes the standard and it disables your ability to be in a loving giving relationship and it makes you kind of hide and create a world of your own a world that's not real but nonetheless the world that you've chosen and you choose it again every day it says in John chapter 3 verse 19 people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil it's not very much of a stretch to say yeah I know people maybe I am a person who is not as close to God who is not as close to my family who is not as close to the person I want to be because I'm trapped 
in this world. I choose it every day. And then you go from trapped to, watch this, the preference of being in that world. You've adjusted so well that that becomes your preferential existence. And even though it's empty and even though it's unfulfilling, it, it's what you know. And I got to tell you, worlds of self-gratification and self-justification. I don't really like to relate to other people you'll say to yourself because they're always judging, they're always this, they're always that. It's preferable to a real relationship because guess what? Real relationships are work. Real relationships take effort. Love is sacrifice. Love costs. This doesn't. It's free. And so you just have created another person who has an eternal separation. There comes a point at which you can't go back because you won't go back. Do you remember what Jesus said about the only unforgivable sin? There's only one unforgivable sin. Only one. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now what does that mean? Why can't you be forgiven of that? What does the Holy Spirit do? It convicts you of sin. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, I'm going to sin. What are you talking about? I'm all right. I did it my way. There's a reason I'm like, I've got all these reasons to justify what I'm doing. Don't judge me. The sin is unforgivable, not because God won't forgive, but because you won't ask for forgiveness. You don't even realize it's sin anymore. And so you live in sin. And you're isolated. And it becomes permanent. So, what about hell? People theorize about hell all the time. They, they create this, these scenarios to try to make, you know, people who believe in hell odd. They ask these, these questions about God. Would a good God really send people to hell? Well, if justice is a part of goodness, then the answer would have to be yes. But let's go back on that question. I don't like how that question's framed. God doesn't send anybody anywhere. God permits people to make their decisions. Some people say, what about people who never had the chance to hear the gospel? Personally, the way I read scripture and plainly read it, I do not believe a just God would punish someone who never had a chance at saying yes. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, ignorance 
is a part of the defense of Jesus. Remember when he was on the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That was his basis for a plea for forgiveness. Also, Jesus, remember when he healed the blind man in John chapter 9? He, uh, um, you know, the Pharisees were all honked off about it. And, and, uh, and, and, and finally, they started questioning. And, and, and they got this hint from Jesus. Maybe this wasn't just about physical blindness. Maybe this was about spiritual blindness. And then they got all insulted. And they said, do you think we're blind? And this is what Jesus answered. John 9, 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. All right, so there's, there's room there for people who are totally incapable of making a decision for God that God died for them to. But that's not us. That's not us. And so the ultimate question is, what about me now? What about me? You see, it's important on the one hand to let God make the judgment for everybody else. No, none of you can make a judgment on anybody else. You, we're not in that business. We know, because the Bible says so, that those who have accepted the gift of salvation through the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ are absolutely assured of eternal life in heaven with Christ. We know that. That's absolutely certain. And I'm going to give an altar call in a minute just so that some of you can make certain. If you've never pronounced or said that prayer, I'm going to, I'm going to say it with you just so that you can have the assurance. But here's what we don't know. You can't go to somebody's funeral and guess. Not your job. Not your job. This is what the Bible says. We gotta hand that over to God. This is what the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said, God sees not as man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God will never judge unjustly. He knows everybody's heart. So turn all of that over to him. Start asking, stop asking questions about who and where, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. Bring it back to the one you can manage, me. What about my life? You see, further into that passage in Genesis, the Bible says in Genesis 3.9 that the Lord God called to the man, he came walking in the garden in the cool of the day and called to the man, where are you? Now, do you really believe God couldn't find Adam behind a bush? Seriously, you think that's a geographical question? That's not a geographical question. God is super good at hide and seek. He really is. You cannot hide from God. He sees you. That was not a geographical question. That was a biographical question. Adam, where are you in relation to me? What'd you do? Why are you back there? Where are you in your life? That's the question he asked every one of us this morning. Where are you? 
Is that really where you want to be? Where are you? See, all of us have kind of the final judgment happening, and, and, and we have this big battle between good and evil in our minds at the end times, you know. That's when all the judgment's going to happen. Book of Revelation, I love to be, read the book of Revelation. It's so full of symbolism and drives people crazy. And there's this final battle that's pictured in Revelation 17, or Revelation 16, you know this, Battle of Armageddon, right? And for some time there's, there's been this speculation as to where that battle was going to take place in the future. And if you go to Israel, there's this field of Megiddo. I said, well, this is where it's going to take place. There have been other theories in history where it's going to take place. Some people thought it was going to take place in Geneva, Switzerland, because it would be a battle between the forces of the Protestant faith and the Catholic faith. I'm not sure where that came from, but that's not the final battle. The cool thing is <clears throat> that if you understand Revelation, you know the final battle has already been won. You, you know, in, in Revelations, in Revelation uh, 16, 17, they're all ready to fight the battle, and it says this. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now, when you're reading that, you're going, wait, wait, wait. I was, where's the battle? I was ready for the battle. It is done? You know where those words come from, right? Those were the three words on the cross. It is done. That battle was won 2,000 years ago on that cross. That battle was won for you 2,000 years ago on that cross. And the only question is, are you going to accept that victory? And are you going to accept it with a community that Christ inaugurated? Remember the first time he gave the vision of the church. This is what he said in Matthew 16, 15. He said to them, to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The you is plural. Who do y'all say that I am? Who do all y'all say that I am together? See, we, we always think he was just looking at Peter and saying, who do you say that I am? That was not an individual question. Christ was saying, just as important as what you say personally is what does the community you surround yourself with say I am? Because that's the rest of your salvation. Your salvation can be personal, but it cannot be private. I meant for you to have a community. And heaven is a community. Hell is isolation. Hell is alone, not heaven. And so I want you to belong. I want you not to walk alone. I want you to be surrounded by people who love you and support you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give an altar call. Just right out, flat altar call. And I'm going to ask... Those of you who have never said the prayer of salvation, 
I mean, you believe in God, but you've never said the prayer of salvation. Remember what Jesus said, he who confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And so this, this collective sense of I'm going to do this as a witness in the midst of my community is really important. And if you've never done that, I'm going to call, oh, there you're I'm gonna, uh, When this music starts, I'm going to meet you down here. I want to say with you the prayer of salvation, if you never said it out in public, uh, because it's, it's important. It's important that we do this together. It's very simple. And that way you will have absolute confidence that you have everything God provided you to live with him forever. And you need to have no doubt about that. And then in the midst of that, I'm going to do a second order call of people who want to support the people who have come forward to say that prayer. Okay? Okay. So listen to these words. And as they're singing, those of you who want to pray with me the prayer of salvation, never done it before in, in, a, in a setting like this uh, with other people, uh, but you know that's important. Um, you or your children need that kind of certainty and assurance. I want you to come forward. There's time. Wherever you are in the room, please come forward. Those of you online, just do whatever symbolically you have to do to step forward in order to pray with us. Okay? Come on. Come on with me. <laughs> 